Please be seated. Let me pray for us before we uh, explore Ecclesiastes 4 together. Father God, thank you for your word and we pray now as we open it together that by your spirit uh, you would prepare our hearts and our minds to receive it, to be humble before it. Father, we pray as we read your word we would see your living word, your son, and trust him. Amen. Well, over recent weeks and following on from Easter, we've been exploring together what life without Jesus would look like. And that was the big question on the road to Emmaus uh, that we saw a couple of weeks ago in Luke 24 as the couple uh, with heads downcast, with hopes dashed, uh, tried to contemplate life without Jesus. We saw for them the difference the risen Jesus made as their hopes that they thought were dashed, were fulfilled. We saw last week as we tried to explore the difference the risen Jesus makes to work. And what we're trying to do in this series is to see, does it actually make a difference that Christ is Lord? Does it actually make a difference to the nitty-gritty of life, to the small details of life, rather than just knowing it in the big picture? Does it actually change the way we live? Last week was work. This week we moved to the heart of things, I think, to the whole idea of friendship and relationships. Does the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead actually change the way I relate? Last week uh, was all about work, the, sort of the defining characteristic of the modern human or at least the way we define others. Uh, we often describe others by what they do. But uh, if we were to think about ourselves and the things that we hold most dear, not many of us would say work is what we hold most dear. For, for most of us, I suspect it's our relationships, our friendships that matter most. That's what life is all about, isn't it? And as I was thinking about that uh, this week, I was reminded uh, in childhood of a, a TV show that I watched religiously. I used to race home in time uh, to watch it. It was called The Wonder Years. Uh, now, when I mentioned it at uh, 9.15, there was almost total uh, silence. No one had ever seen it. Has anyone here seen The Wonder Years. There's a few nods, a few embarrassed nods by the looks of it. I love The Wonder Years. I think I've seen every episode uh, there was. It was a very soppy show. But uh, it was all about friendship. Even the theme song was uh, a little help from my friends by the Beatles. Everything about it was uh, how good friendship is, how good relationships are. The main character was uh, a guy called Kevin Arnold and he was about my age at the time. And uh, So I sort of transposed everything about me onto Kevin Arnold and I lived life uh, through Kevin. Uh, he had a best friend, I've forgotten his best friend's name, uh, some, somebody can tell me later, and he had his uh, girlfriend across the road, Winnie Cooper. Uh, and every, every boy who ever watched that show was in love with Winnie Cooper. But let me, let me give you a quote to give you a bit of a flavour of the show and also I think it tells us why relationships are so good. Kevin Arnold speaking says, Over the course of the average lifetime you meet a lot of people Some of them stick with you through thick and thin. Some weave their way through your life and then disappear forever. But once in a while, someone comes along who earns a permanent place in your heart. Beautiful, isn't it? (laughs) Every week was like that, pure gold. But but as I was looking back on this, I, I, I think Kevin's right. Friendship is what life is about, isn't it? Think about the friends that you have now, the the ones that have carried through into adult life. 
the ones who really know you, who remember the things that you remember, that you've done life with them. That's what's most important to us, isn't it? Friendship is at the heart of life. How good is it to be known by someone, to know someone else? To have people that we feel completely at home with. You can walk into a room and you can uh, meet someone you haven't met for years but it's like time has stood still. How good is that? Whether it be uh, a sort of a childhood friend that you've remained thick as thieves with all through the years or whether it be a work colleague who over the years has become a close friend or a neighbour or one of the great adventures of life, marriage, a wife or a husband who is your companion for life, your partner in crime, your closest friend. How good is it to be known and to know someone? Friendship, that's what life is all about, isn't it? There is nothing better under the sun than relationships. But let me ask you, have you ever stopped to wonder why it is that we like them so much? Why it is that it's so important to us to have friendship, to have relationship? Why two are better than one? Well, the Bible's answer is quite simple but wonderful at the same time. The Bible says to us the reason why we think friendship is so important is because it's who we are. It's who we've been made, the way we've been wired up, knitted together. It's not good for us to be alone. We are made for friendship. But to understand this make-up, this sort of the way we've been put together, you need to understand our maker The God who is revealed in the scriptures, the living God, is Trinity. By his very nature, he is a relational God. Our God is Father, Son and Spirit. Three persons, one God. We say it every week in our creeds. We said it just a few moments ago when we said we believe in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. But have you ever considered that this truth actually affects who we are, the way we are made up? Our God is in friendship. The relationship between the Father and the Son is one of mutual love. Each understands the other. Each is totally committed to the other. In short, they love each other. If you want to see uh, how that plays out, read uh, John 17 sometime and see the prayer that the Son prays to the Father and see how by their very nature they are in friendship. And if you want to understand why relationships are so important to us, why we only feel complete when in friendship with others, then this is where we need to start. By knowing that the God who has made us is by his nature relational and personal and that we, his creatures, have been made in his image. We have this relational stamp printed all over us. It's who we are. Father, Son and Spirit, we are made in their image. And so given this reality, if you look all the way through the scriptures, Again and again, as far as God is concerned, our nature and our purpose as human beings is all to do with relationships. In the earliest chapters of Genesis, as God is looking over his creation and repeatedly says how good it is, it is very good, he looks and sees man alone and he sees something that is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. He says, I will make a suitable helper for him. God knows we need a companion, a friend, one just like us. You see, that's what's so special about friendship, isn't it? It's like C.S. Lewis says, friendship is born at that moment when one person says to another, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. 
And that's what happens when Adam sees Eve. Here is one just like me, a suitable companion, a friend. And so right from the basement of time, God says to us, the fundamental social unit is two, not one. And what our passage today does, Ecclesiastes 4, is it affirms this. It reminds us again that two are better than one. So if you don't have it open, it's worth turning to it now. Page 671, Ecclesiastes 4, page 671. And we're going to start by looking at a poem in the middle of it, verses 9 to 12, where Solomon, the writer of this this book, affirms what we've been thinking about so far, why friendship is so good. And he gives us five reasons why it's so important. The first of those we see in verse 9. Quite simply, two are better than one because two are more productive than one. They can do more things together. The image here is almost of business partners, two people in some sort of enterprise together. Quite simply, you can do more together than apart. It's true in life, isn't it? Last Sunday afternoon I had a few hours off and so I headed to Ikea in Leeds and I made the poor decision of heading to Ikea on my own. Now, Ikea should never be done on your own. It's just not a smart decision at all. And if you look, if you go to Ikea, you'll see that almost nobody is alone at Ikea. They go there, you know, a couple goes there together, friends, whoever it might be. You don't do it alone because what happens is you get, you get whatever you've bought and you get it back to your car and all of a sudden you realise you have this giant flat pack and you're on your own and you've got no chance of getting it into your car and you look around you and all around you is pairs doing this work. Two is better than one. The Bible says to us, relationships don't just feel good, they work, they make sense. He goes on in verse 10, two are better than one because they can help each other out. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him. Such a simple illustration, isn't it? And yet it makes sense. It's not good to be alone. Who's going to help you if you fall? He goes on with another reason in verse 11. Two can provide comfort for each other. And really verse 10, verse 11 and 12, we've got this, almost this image of two travellers on a journey. Firstly, if one falls over, the other can pick him up. And now in verse 11, at the end of the day, if they don't have anywhere to stay, they can at least keep each other warm. This whole idea of comfort is so important to us, isn't it? The idea of not being alone when we need help. Last year about this time, I think it was actually this week just past, uh, we had a a terrible incident in uh, Tasmania in Australia, the Beaconsfield mine disaster. I'm not sure if it reached here, but really it was uh, late April. uh, The mine collapsed on 17 of the miners. Uh, One was killed instantly. 14 escaped almost straight away, but then the other two were assumed dead uh, because they couldn't be found. Some 14 days later they walked out of there alive but for the first seven of those days no one knew they were there. But there they were together, Todd Russell and Brant Webb, uh, miles underground and uh, they comforted each other. They tried to keep each other alive. They tried to spur each other on thinking that someone would hear them. They only knew one song between, each, between the two of them. It was Kenny Rogers, the gambler. Not a great song, but it's the only one they knew. So they sang it over and over again to each other and one of them had a muesli bar, so they shared that. They wrote letters to their family on each other's clothes. Two are better than one. 
Solomon goes on in verse 12, two are safer than one. Again, the image of a journey of two travellers being attacked. Two have a chance of defending themselves. One is easy prey. And again and again in the Bible we get these uh, images of friendship, how good it is to have someone who protects us. You see it with Paul when he is arrested in Rome in 2, 2 Timothy 1. Virtually everyone has deserted him and there he is in Rome and his great friend, one of Sephorus, chases through Rome looking for him, desperate to help him. You see it with David and Jonathan as King Saul is trying to kill David. His great friend Jonathan warns him, two are better than one. And then finally at the end of verse 12 we get this great phrase, a three-chord strand is not easily broken. And at this point, uh, this passage is often read at weddings and I suspect at this point over-spiritualised. The idea of a couple and then God is the third strand. But I don't think the passage is actually saying that at this point. It's just telling us how good relationship is. Two are better than one, three is even better. You think about all the reasons why two is good that we've been given in verse 9 onwards. They're all even better with three. They can produce more. They can help each other out more, comfort each other. They're safer. Relationships are good. They make sense, says Solomon. But while it's clear that relationships are deeply good and while it's clear that companionship and its many benefits that we've seen are a gift from God, we need to remember, as Solomon does in Ecclesiastes 4, that we live in a world where we have taken God out of the equation. We know relationships are good but we can't see what God has to do with that. And there's been this phrase all the way through Ecclesiastes, to live under the sun, to relate under the sun. And what that phrase really means is, what's it like to live in this world when you take God out of the equation? It's living under the sun. Where we say to God, I have no need of you to flourish in life, especially in relationships. And as soon as a person thinks that way, whether they know it or not, They've severed the most important relationship they'll ever have. And walking away from this relationship, our relationship with God, leaves a person just like the one on the road in verses 10 to 12, alone, with no one to help. In the end, the Bible says, to think you can flourish in your relationships without God is to make the decision that God can't be trusted. I don't trust him in my relationships. And so we say that uh, our, as soon as we say this, our relationship with God is cut off, isn't it? That breaks all relationships, doesn't it? Unbelief, lack of trust. We've said to God, I don't trust you, I don't trust your ways, I'm going it alone. We're convinced with relationships, as with anything, that we can navigate for ourselves. But here's the big problem for our relationships. If God can't be trusted, then neither can you. And so we end up lacking the trust to completely, graciously commit ourselves to another person. We might do it at points, but not in the total way required by God and definitely not in the way that we have been made to. And so what Ecclesiastes 4 does for us is it paints a picture of the consequences this has for our human relationships. The first example we're given is in verses 1 to 3. Relationships in this world when God is taken out of the equation, are often marked by oppression. Solomon says, Again I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. 
when you take God out of the equation, when there is no heaven or Lord of heaven that we are answerable to, this is the way so often we set up our human relationships. Imbalance is the norm. Power on one side, oppression on the other. Two is better than one, but not always, especially not under the sun. Not when two is made up of the oppressed and the one who's meant to be friend, helper, but turns out to be the oppressor. Let me give you a few examples of the way our world sets itself up that way. My country of birth, Australia, has one of the strictest refugee policies in the world. The reason it has that, I guess, is over the years that we're an island and uh, people come to us uh, quite frequently on boats, uh, leaving desperate situations in hope of finding shelter in Australia. But over the years that we've decided as a country to mandatory detain every single person who comes to us, we arrest them and then we slowly review their case. Sometimes over eight years it takes to review their case. So here you have people who have moved from oppression, moved to Australia hoping to find a friend and find yet more oppression. We see it uh, with the whole issue of slavery. We celebrate uh, this year what William Wilberforce was able to achieve and yet slavery has changed form, hasn't it? It's still a part of our world. Who can bring comfort to the crushed and ill-treated in our world? Those who are overpowered. Can our aid agencies or the United Nations? Well, to a certain extent they can and what they do we give thanks to God for. But the problem of oppression remains, doesn't it? It's like we sort out one area and another one pops up. It's like the boy with his finger in the dam plugging the leak and all of a sudden there's another one over there. We don't have the capacity or the inclination. We don't trust each other enough. Take, for example, the whole issue of the drop the debt campaign. Many nations who have money owed to them decided not to sign up because they didn't trust that the other countries would use the money wisely. Take God out of the equation And what hope is there for the oppressed? Who can bring comfort to them? Who is their friend? It's not good to be alone, but even worse is being together and being totally crushed by the one you thought was friend. And so Solomon, seeing this, do you see what he says in verses 2 and 3? He says, it's better to be dead than be in a relationship like this. Even more, verse 3, it's better to have not even been born Seems over the top, doesn't it? It's like you know, he's just taking things a little too far. Surely it's not that bad. But we can't grasp it because I think a lot of this, this idea of oppressive relationships seems distant to us, to many of us anyway. And besides, we're, we're pretty convinced that our resources, our money is our friend and would be able to help us so that we would not be oppressed. Take God out of the equation and you have to replace him with something and so more often than not, Money, material well-being is that for us. Money becomes our creator. We become self-made men and women. It becomes our saviour that digs us out of trouble. Money becomes our comforter. You know, the ultimate solution to a broken relationship, retail therapy. In money, we believe we always have an answer to the problem and a helper. And so I suspect that's why Solomon now shifts from relationships of oppression to relationships of rivalry. Have a look at verses 4 to 6. 
Not all of us know much about oppressive relationships, especially the ones that we've spoken about, but I suspect we all know about relationships built on rivalry and envy. Relationships shaped by the view that it's all about getting what you can now. And to be honest, if you take God out of the picture, if all there is is here and now, then why not? Why wouldn't you live that way? Who wants to be the one oppressed in a relationship? It's far better to be the have than the have not, isn't it? And so we look around us and we see those who've got and we want it. We can so easily move from being friends and companions to being the competitors of those around us. Envy is the driving force of so much success in our world, the thirst for more, the dissatisfaction with what we have. That's what Solomon sees in so many relationships around him and I suspect that attitude is in us all. You think about uh, the world that we live in, the Western world, the whole way it's set up, the economy of our Western civilization is set up on the idea that you and I are competitors. The philosophy behind it, utilitarianism, says that we are all individuals competing and that's how we get the greatest gain. So easy to turn to rivalry, isn't it? You can see it in our workplaces. When I uh, worked before Bible college, one of the little competitions that always happened, and I was very much a part of it, it's hard not to be, is the whole idea of leaving work last. You know, there would be the boss in the corner office and everyone would have to work at least to when he worked and then you'd want to work as late as possible to prove that you were committed, that you were worth promotion. Or you can see it in a couple. Um, one may be a full-time worker, one a full-time mum and they compete about who works the hardest. It's so easy to become rivals rather than friends. Relationships shaped by rivalry, though, quickly end up turning us into people who are self-centred. Two is better than one. But not when we think the two are in a race. Rivalry says in the end, you're not my friend. Money or success or whatever else we're chasing after, that's my friend. To relate this way, says Solomon, is pointless. It's like chasing after the wind. And so in verses 7 and 8 he brings us to the logical conclusion of relationships like this. If we can't get on together, if we can't trust each other, then maybe I'm better off alone. You're not my friend. And so we have a picture here of a man totally isolated. He's made friends with money, with accumulation, not people. He is totally and utterly alone and miserable. It's not good for man to be alone. If you take your relationship with God out of the equation, we find again and again our relationships fail to deliver. They are, in the end, the Bible says, hevel, meaningless, like smoke and mirrors. Well, where to from here? The great news about our God is he will not let this state of affairs remain. He looks at relationships, at friendship and he says what was once good, what we have broken, he can redeem. One of my favourite verses in the whole Bible, John chapter 1 verse 14 I think speaks directly to this issue. Speaking of Jesus it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The God whom we've cut ourselves off from comes close. You see, unreconciled, broken relationships are not an option for God. He is, after all, a relational God. It's not good for man to be alone, he says. 
God knows this and he knows he must come close. And so literally John 1.14 says he comes down to us and he sets up his tent in the middle of us. Such a great image, isn't it? We who've said we want nothing to do with you, he wanders right into the middle of our world, pitches his tent and says, I'm with you. And hear this, he comes not as oppressor or as rival but as friend, a true friend. John chapter 15, which was read out earlier, says, Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Through the death of Jesus, our God has rewritten the whole relationship rule book. We treated him as enemy, we treated him as nothing. He comes to us as friend and gives his life away. It's not the human way, is it? We have our limits where relationship is broken and we say no more, whether it be at work, we get so frustrated with someone we say, I I just can't be around that person. Or even more seriously, in marriage we can say that, we can say enough is enough. But not so with God. Not so with God. He offers himself completely to us and for us and he gives us the ultimate proof why we can trust his love, why this is a relationship we can't possibly do without. Solomon says if one falls down, his friend can help him up. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. You and I were very much in the ditch, having cut ourselves off from God, being surrounded and even being involved in relationships marred by oppression and rivalry and individualism and all with a sentence of death hanging over us, we had fallen down in the ditch very much. But God is not like us. He will not give up on us. Even though we're in the ditch, he looks on us and he sees a friend. What a friend we have in Jesus the one who comes and sets up his tent among us, comes beside us, who knows how to help and is able to help. Greater love has no one than this. Our friend takes our place. Our God submits himself to the very worst of human relationships, to the oppression, rivalry and individualism of this world. He works through all of this to redeem us. And hear this. Jesus, our friend, who laid down his life for us, he has a friend, his father, whom he trusts, who loves him very much and will not abandon his son to the grave, but instead, as Colossians says, raised him up from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And with that news, with that declaration, it is true, Christ is risen We have opened up for us a whole new way to be human. We are freed from the futility of death and we are freed from self-centred relationships. You see, with Jesus' resurrection, God calls on us to start all over again. Having got ourselves into the mess in the first place by not trusting him, he says to us, trust me. John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command, says Jesus. This is what friends of God do. To live this way is to say, I don't just live under the sun, I live under heaven and the God of heaven. I do what he says. Why wouldn't you? He's your friend. Relationships with Jesus are meant to be radically different because of this. 
In the words of 2 Corinthians 5, we're told that we are now hemmed in by this love that God has shown us. Everything we do is, is hemmed in, fenced in by this love. It means I don't just live for myself anymore. I don't just do whatever I please. I live for Jesus because I know he is utterly committed to my good. It means again in the words of 2 Corinthians 5 that I see the world differently, not as rivals, but as friends whom I am called to love as I have been loved. And it means in the words of Colossians 3 that my heart, my eyes, my attention is now on heaven, not on the things under the sun. It means that the characteristic relationships that I had under the sun have no place in the way I relate now. In fact, those things, things like oppression and rivalry and greed, are to be put to death. We're told, get rid of them. We used to walk that way, but that just leaves us in the ditch alone. God says, get rid of them. And it means I now have a whole new set of characteristics that I'm to put on that will radically reshape the way I live. Characteristics modelled after the friend who heard my cry for help. It means establishing relationships with others where I'm utterly committed to their good. It means putting on things like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. And if you think that won't make a difference, try putting them on more and more and see what a huge difference it makes to your relationships. Finally, and this is most important for us because we're going to fail to do that again and again, It means bearing with one another because we know that we're going to fail. The answer in human relationships, the answer in relationships under the sun is when we fail each other, we say, that's it. But not so with God. He calls on us to forgive each other as we have been forgiven. And above all, we are to put on love which binds the whole thing together because we know that two are better than one. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your incredible love for us. We thank you that you have proved that love by laying down your life for us. Father, we pray that we would live more and more lives that reflect your Son. Help us to love as we have been loved. Amen. We're going to sing our final song now, which is also the offertory song, and it's Be Thou My Vision.